I was talking to my business partner, but I was also earwigging with what these two other boys were talking about. And they were talking about a part of this government agency that I used to work in that the government agency had decided to sell off, and it was a project called Learning Pool. The government was losing a lot of money. They weren't really able to deal with the technology at all, and they had decided it wasn't core to their business anymore, and they wanted to just get rid of it. And so they'd gone out to a few parties to see if anybody was interested in buying it from them. The biggest company on the list was British Telecom. It's not even an e-learning company, but British Telecom were the top of the list. Then there were all the big e-learning companies that were around Brighton at the time. And then these two boys had been invited to pitch for it as well. And I heard one of them say to the other, oh, it has 80 customers. And the other guy said, yeah, but it would be a real pain. You'd have to bring all that technology in-house. The customer service is terrible. No, I'm not interested in it. So the other guy took the information memorandum, which was printed out on two sheets of A4 paper, and he scrunched it up into a ball and he threw it in a bin. The bin was in between the two desks. And I said to my business partner, hang on a second. And I leant across and I took the pieces of paper out of the bin and I flattened them out on the desk. And I said to the two guys, are you sure you're not interested in this? And they said, nah, knock yourself out. You can have it if you want. This is the Digital Irish Podcast, a show about Irish innovation with entrepreneurs, corporate innovators and global leaders. This show is brought to you by the Digital Irish Network with the mission to promote both Irish innovation and the Irish innovators globally. I'm Patrick McAndrew, and on today's episode, I sit down with Mary McKenna, the technology entrepreneur and angel investor, who is also the co-founder of Learning Pool, which is an e-learning company that she sold in 2014. This interview was my first time meeting Mary McKenna, and that's not an extremely uncommon thing, because for the majority of guests that we've had on the show, the interview that I get to do with them is my first time meeting them. But... Long before Mary was scheduled to be a guest on the show, I had heard her name often mentioned for the work that she does with startups, specifically as an EU Horizon 2020 judge. And for those of you who may not know what that is, it's a programme from the European Union that has offered nearly €80 billion in funding since 2014 to bring innovative products to market. So with that, I knew who Mary was and I knew about her work with startups. And I knew that she was also an entrepreneur in residence at Oxford University and an advisor to several governments, charities and social enterprises. But what I came to learn from our conversation is that's just the most recent chapter in Mary's life and career. There's so much more that has come before her work with startups. And in learning about her career up to this point, I now see why she is such an in-demand judge and mentor for these startups. Her career, as you would expect, hasn't moved in a straight line. There were zigs and zags in and out of different industries and professional roles. And there's so much that we discussed in our conversation. But one thing that I really enjoyed from my chat with Mary was hearing about all of the amazing things that come from saying yes and taking a chance. What you don't know doesn't define what you can or can't do. And when opportunities presented themselves, she took them. Founding Learning Pool is a big example of that. When she decided to start an e-learning company without understanding the market, She just spotted an opportunity and decided that she would figure it out along the way. So I ask you to join us for a life journey that can only make you think about the infinite possibilities when we choose to say yes. So, there's so many places to start and so many things to discuss and so many things to get into. 
But what I'm most interested in, I think what we'll do is we'll take this on a weaving journey through your life to understand how Mary McKenna uh, became the lady that you are today. But to get into that, I'd love to know where life began. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Yorkshire in uh, a little Irish diaspora bubble in South Yorkshire. So we, my sister and I, uh, everybody that we knew were Irish. We went to Catholic school, Irish dancing at the weekend, the whole nine yards. So it was kind of a bit like one of those Martin Scorsese films that's doing the rounds at the moment, but without the violence and the murders. But it was just pure Irish. We lived over there with our cousins and our uncles and our aunties. And, you know, it was kind of like the men all had jobs. They all worked for other people. They all had construction jobs and things like that. And the women more or less all stayed at home and brought the families up. We all went back to Ireland in the summer and in Easter and Christmas holidays to visit our grandparents and be allowed to just open the back door and run up and run up the hills as far as you like, come back when you're hungry, that sort of way. And it was strange, really. So, I mean, even thinking about St. Patrick's Day, my granny used to send over to us shamrock that had been... She used to roll it up in the, in the Tyrone Democrat and she used to tie that up with string and it would arrive about a week and a half later and the shamrock would be brought out of the newspaper where it had just been stuffed inside and it would be dead. And our mum would make it into a little bundle and put it onto our cardigans and we'd go to school like that when we were at primary school and all the other kids would say to us, why have you come to school with a dead plant on your cardi? <laughs> 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 and loads of other badges and ribbons and things, you know, to identify that you were Irish and it was St. Patrick's Day. Did so, you nearly feel like you were more Irish than everybody else when you went back to Ireland? I don't think to the same extent. Like, I once uh, I remember visiting some cousins of my father's that lived in San Francisco and they'd all been, they'd all been, uh, they were second generation Irish and they were policemen. And we went to the, we went to the Irish club and it was completely far more Irish than it is anywhere in Ireland. So it wasn't as scary as that, but it was that sort of whole thing about how your parents have moved away because they had to, and they were trying to hang on to a little bit of home, that sort of way. So your parents moved to Yorkshire. But I was born in Northern Ireland. But you were born in Northern Ireland? Oh, yeah. Okay. My father particularly wanted me to be born at his home place. Yeah. So that... There's a kind of a funny little story there, which means that my father didn't actually see me until I was a month old and I was back. He came and met my mum off the ferry coming back in Scotland. He drove up and picked her and the new baby up. So can you sort of imagine these days a dad not seeing the firstborn child until they were a month old? (laughs) And had that intentionally been done that your mother had gone back to Tyrone? Yes, absolutely. Why was that so important to them? It was important for them that I was born in Ireland. Yeah. Uh, Was there a particular expectation of you and your sister then of the type of lives that you were going to live or the type of work that you were going to do growing up in in your family? Well, you kind of know, you know how it is. Your parents always want something better for you than Mm. they had for themselves. So... You know, there was there was always a lot of chat about how you would be expected to go to university and whatever. But my cousins and I and I were the first people out of the family that ever did. But uh, you know, if I'm really honest with you, Patrick, you know, I went to university and just completely wasted my time. <laughs> I think many of us did. Yeah, <laughs> which I'm a bit ashamed of now. But uh, I kind of put it down to just 
I don't think about it as being a party girl. I think about it as being the start of building a network. Right. Where did you go to university? I went to university in Lancaster up in the Lake District. Oh, that's a beautiful place. It really is, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. like Ireland. It rains every day. <laughs> yeah, there's lots to explore in the outdoors. Uh, what did you study? I studied economics and fine art. Economics and fine art? Yeah. That is one of the most interesting combinations I've ever heard of somebody studying school. What led you down those two very meandering <laughs> paths? Well, it studied economics because I thought that would be useful. And I studied fine art because that was what I enjoyed. Okay, so I think it'd be interesting to get into the person, the the person, the younger teenage Mary McKenna, that for somebody who has uh, an interest in fine art uh, in their teenage years, usually yeah. their interest in kind of, or their rationale to choose something like economics would be foregone and vice versa. Somebody who would be interested in economics. It's probably a people-pleasing tra- trait in there. Really? Yeah. You sort of do the economics to make your parents happy. Okay. And then you just slip the fine art in. And why, a bit under the radar so that why was fine art of interest to you did you were you were you a creative person when you were growing up uh, not really but I've always enjoyed uh, like the arts and creativity and other people being creative uh, but no I went on to so I mean I've got a weird sort of career path I went on to eventually become an accountant a commercial accountant but when the opportunity presented itself, I dropped that like a hot potato and I moved into sales. <laughs> How long was that? So so you finished college, you went into to become an accountant. How long did you No, 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 I didn't. I did a load of other things first. Oh, did uh, you? Oh yeah, yeah. 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 I worked in I worked in the city of London in the nineteen eighties when you could basically just show up anywhere and you'd get a job because there was a, an employment boom in the city. Um so I did lots and lots of different things. Um None of them terribly useful towards a career, really. But I always do say, like, I did things like I worked for a chain of petrol stations dealing with the complaints that came in. And I wandered around London taking photographs for somebody. You know, weird sort of little bits and pieces like that. I worked for one of the trade unions. But I do say that nothing that you ever learn is actually wasted. No. You do, you know, those weeks that you spent listening to people shouting down at the phone at you because they'd put diesel in their car instead of petrol or somebody had spilt a pot of paint on their brand new Rolls Royce when they were putting petrol in it and they were in the station paying. All that stuff comes in useful because it teaches you about how to deal with people and that's one of the most important skills I think that there is in life and business. Yeah, and looking back on it, can you do you get a chance to see that now that all those kind of varying jobs played a role in you being successful when it came to running your own business or I think just so. having insights and experiences so. in it yeah because when you run your own business it's helpful if you can do many of the jobs that you're asking everybody else to do yeah it's kind of useful if you're actually able to do some of them yourselves yourself so that you don't come across as being a complete a bit of an I am you know <laughs> so you you became a commercial accountant and who did you work for at that stage? What kind of... What I worked kind of- in the City of London for a very traditional, uh, one of the professional membership bodies. But I worked for a guy who had a real entrepreneurial streak and he set about disrupting this really old fashion type of business by going out and acquiring small startup-y types of businesses that he thought were complementary to what we were doing. And he 
really encouraged me to go and do uh, accountancy training. Um, I, I thought about either doing accountancy or law, and I decided on accountancy, and I'm really pleased that I did because it's extremely useful for what I do today. If you're an investor and you're investing in early stage businesses or whatever, there's nothing quite as useful as being able to read a balance sheet. It's even better if people don't know that you can. <laughs> and it's just something that you kind of have in your back pocket that uh, is, a, is a useful sort of skill. Um, and so he, he kind of encouraged me and he let me do a lot of the merger and acquisition work that we were doing. And I went off and I trained to be a corporate secretary. And then I decided to go on and do sort of full-blown accountancy training and became a chartered accountant. How did that feel for you, that kind of that path in life? Like, obviously, it seemed like it was a, a good path to take and good work to do. But did it serve you? Did you find a level of enjoyment out of it? Yeah, it kind of did serve me. Yeah. Um, I like numbers. I think you're a lucky person if you do like numbers. I see lots of entrepreneurs that are fabulous entrepreneurs, but they miss that overall grasp of where they are with their numbers and their metrics and it's a big failing and I see people that really struggle to try and get to grips with it but I think it's one of those things that you can improve but you sort of either have it or you don't mm. so yeah it served me well and when I moved back to Ireland which I did about 20 years ago it was to join one of the high-tech spin-outs from Queen's University which was a semiconductor IP company um, and it was to join them as their global CFO. Wow. So is that what you went into when you said you dropped the the, the commercial accounting role as when, you, when you had the opportunity to? Was that to go directly into that role? I came into them as an accountant. They were looking, uh, they were a, a VC-funded startup that where the engineering team was based in Belfast, and sales and marketing was done in San Jose in the Valley. And so... Um, it was a really interesting company. I joined at the point when there were about 30 people probably and they'd taken, they'd taken one significant round of VC money and they were scaling up and they were opening um, presences in Japan and Canada, other offices in the US and whatever. And so it was a great job for me. And they were looking for an accountant who wasn't a sort of a typical bean counter sort of person. So it was kind of a perfect, perfect job. They were looking for somebody who could join their negotiating team and go along and be helpful to the sales team in making sales. And that's when I found out that actually I preferred selling to doing the numbers bit. Really? Yeah. How soon, how soon did you notice that? About three weeks. Really? <laughs> I think so, yeah. What did, what did you like about the sales side of things? It's kind of exciting, isn't it? And like it was uh, the sales that we made were all to um, West Coast companies or companies in South Korea, places, you know, chip makers, places like that. We were creating uh, technology in Belfast that was all around um, wireless LAN, uh, MPEG technology, JPEG technology. It was the stuff that made uh, people be able to send each other photographs and videos on their phones. So we used to sit up in our office in Belfast uh, couple of doors down from um, Queen's University looking at each other and basically rolling about laughing because we couldn't actually believe that there was customers in Japan that would pay our engineering teams to develop 
technology that would allow people to send photographs to each other on their phones because we didn't for one minute think that anybody would ever want to do that. <laughs> and, of course... How did you make those sales? How did you position, how did you kind of successfully get that to market? It was because was there a demand there for it in advance? Yeah, well, Semiconductor IP is a is just a different way for the chip companies and the chip users to produce t- technology. So quite often you would find yourself in a situation where your engineering team was working on a project that the customer also had an internal team working on, but they were just hedging their bets. So it would be whoever built the product first that was essentially was the winner. So it was kind of a weird time to be to be working in that type of area. And then, of course, uh, 9-11 happened and the backside fell out of the semiconductor industry. So my first year working in the semiconductor industry was the semiconductor industry's worst year in 30 years. And what happened to the business after the <sighs> We downsized it and we sold it, but we sold it to a big US company. So it, it was fine. Everybody, the shareholders all did really well. Everybody got paid. Everybody got out nicely. Uh, the company was subsequently sold on again to Intel. So it's one of Belfast's big success stories. And then, strangely enough, so that's, you know, 16 years ago or 17 years ago, the original engineering team bought the name back about three years ago, started over in Belfast with some new products, and they just sold the company again. Really? For a a sizable sum? I've no idea. Don't quote me on that one. I've no idea. But uh, it just shows you that you can actually sell the same business, not just once, but maybe twice and maybe even more times than that. Yeah, God, that's fascinating. And Isn't it fascinating? After you had that experience then, I'm sure there was just no going back, right? You you probably had you had the... You're so right. You had the bug now. Yeah. So you know, where, where they was... Call, the, they call it feeding the rat. <laughs> where was the next step then after that? I went to work for myself as a... Uh, just as a, like a freelance person for a while. I went back to work for my old boss, the guy that had uh, encouraged me to become an accountant. Um, he was heading up a big government department in London and he had been asking me to come back and work for him for a few years, but I'd been caught up in the whole Amphion Semiconductor thing and I was I didn't want to leave my high-tech startup. Um but I went back to work for John. I went back to work for him for six weeks. He needed somebody to come in. Um, he had a department, a large department, a government department that was overspending its budgets by millions. And he needed somebody that he trusted to come in and have a look at the business and do a sort of a business turnaround on it. So uh, he asked me to come back. I sacked somebody on the first morning that I was there. Literally, a guy come in at 10.30 in the morning. How are you in those kind of situations? Uh, calm. <laughs> a guy came in at 10.30 in the morning. He was eating a, a takeaway out of a takeaway container. And I just said to him, stop, don't take your coat off. And he said, why? And I said, because you don't work here anymore. And the rest of the team went into like a sort of state of panic and a few people started saying to me, actually, you're not allowed to do that. And blah, What was blah, your blah. judgment call on that? Was that based on the kind of character? That oh, it's Monday morning. Was? There's a new person in charge of the team. 
and a member of the team thinks it's okay to come into work at 10.30, actually eating food out of a takeaway container and they come into the office. I mean, what sort of... Yeah. You wouldn't do that, would you? Certainly not. No, neither would I. Yeah. And so I think the way that people behave tells you an awful lot about other things that they do. Yeah. And so what, what did you go in? You, did you kind of uh, change the whole management structure inside out? Yeah, I stayed there for... Ended up staying there for a year... And what was that experience like to be there for a year and kind of have that reign to... It was great. And the, and there's a there's a link to the latest story here, which is why I'm bothering to tell you that. Yeah. Um, because eventually that government organisation was the place that I bought Learning Pool from, which was my business in Derry. You bought it from them? Yeah. Oh, Interesting. I didn't realise that you had purchased Learning Pool. Okay, so we'll hmm. come to Learning Pool in a, in a little bit. In a little bit. What was the first uh, business that you had where you went out on your own? Because I, I read an article that said you you didn't start your um, entrepreneurial career until you were forty. Is that correct? Forty three. Forty three. So, so you had worked primarily in CFO and accountancy roles for the large part of your career up until that point. Is that right? Yeah, and then I. Worked as a CFO in, in Belfast with the semiconductor company. And then after that, I went and did this turnaround job. And then I came back to, I was headhunted to come and work in a management consultancy business in Derry, um, which I did uh, because I wanted to move back home because the commute was a nightmare, as you can imagine. Yeah. And um, it was a deeply unsatisfactory experience. And... One of the guys that came to work with me, um, we just decided one day that we'd kind of had enough. Uh, my phone rang one evening. It was somebody that I'd done some work for a couple of years before in the government. And he offered me a contract, a significant size contract for something that he needed done, which was similar to what I'd done for my old boss. And... I couldn't do that and do my job, so I just... Kind of like managing a team, kind of stripping... It was a, it was a turnaround project yeah. for a government project that was going the wrong way. And I just sort of decided, thought about it overnight and decided the next morning that I was going to resign and do that. And a guy that worked for me said, if you're going, I'm coming as well. And I was a bit like, hang on a minute, your wife's expecting your first baby in about two months' time... You're just building a new house in Donegal. Are you sure? Because I don't really have enough money in this contract for both of us. So we're going to need to win some more work. And he was 100%. I'm coming with you. So we both left and we set up a new business, which was a boutique management consultancy business. And we won loads and loads of work with government agencies in London. And it was kind of in those sort of days when... Everybody was getting paid big day rates. It was under the previous Labour government and it was a bit of a bean feast, you know. We used to we used to go over on Monday mornings. He lived in Donegal, I lived in County Tyrone. We used to meet on the station at Farringdon Station of a Thursday evening and sort of tot up how much money we'd made that week. And it was fabulous. I mean, it really was. But all the time that we did that, we used to talk about having something different that would be money while you sleep because with those sorts of consultancy businesses they're really and you will know this from what you do they're really geared to your own reputation what kind of ideas did you start to play around with to think how do we how do we achieve that what actually happened was we were over in London and we had 
finished work and we had a couple of hours spare before we went off to the airport or whatever. And a couple of friends of ours had one of the very first co-working spaces down by Borough Market in South London. And uh, so we went in and we were sitting at uh, we were sitting at these two desks and we were doing some work and they were sitting at the two desks parallel to us. I was talking to my business partner and but I was also earwigging with what these two other boys were talking about. And they were talking about uh, a part of this government agency that I used to work in that the government agency had decided to sell off. And it was a project called Learning Pool. The government was losing a lot of money. They weren't really able to deal with the technology at all. And they had decided it wasn't core to their business anymore and they wanted to just get rid of it. And so they'd gone out to a few parties to see if anybody was interested in buying it from them. The biggest company on the list was British Telecom. It's not even an e-learning company, but British Telecom were the top of the list. Then there were all the big e-learning companies that were around Brighton at the time. And then these two boys had been invited to pitch for it as well. And I heard one of them say to the other, oh, it has 80 customers. And the other guy said, yeah, but it would be a real pain. You'd have to bring all that technology in-house. The customer service is terrible. No, I'm not interested in it. So the other guy took the information memorandum, which was printed out on two sheets of A4 paper, and he scrunched it up into a ball and he threw it in a bin. The bin was in between the two desks. And I said to my business partner, hang on a second. And I leant across and I took the pieces of paper out of the bin and I flattened them out on the desk. And I said to the two guys, are you sure you're not interested in this? And they said, nah, knock yourself out. You can have it if you want. So I had a look at it. So I was a bit scared by the BT and all these big e-learning companies because at, on that very day, I didn't really know what e-learning was. I have to admit it was... Well, what, what, what year was this? That was 2006. Okay. I didn't really know what e-learning was. It wasn't part wasn't, of my wasn't, world. It certainly you know? wasn't as big of a market as it is today. No, people had all those uh, CDs down the, mm. down the back of their desks in boxes where they'd spent loads of money on them and then two minutes later it was all wrong and out of date and they had to just throw them all away. So, um, and I knew the chief exec of the agency that was selling the business. I also knew the guy that she had given the job of doing the divestment. I knew him as well. So I called him. Half an hour later, we were sitting in a coffee bar with him having a chat. A month, Can a I month just ask later. you, on looking at the memorandum, was there something that caught your eye? Yeah, they had 80 customers. Right. They had 80 local authority customers. And at the time, at that time, there was something like 650 local authorities in the UK. So there was a, there was a beachhead and there was a load of stuff that you could sell on from, from it. But I sort of thought... And the way that I sold it to my business partner was, I said to him, you know, there's, there is actually a great business here because the hardest thing about the UK public sector is getting started with sales. There are 80 customers. Great. We've got a track record that we can sell. What we could do is just tidy up the tech, build, build a team and get the thing up and running and then just flip it. You know, we'll be in and out in six months. We'll flip it onto somebody else and we'll just make a few quid and it'll be great. He's still running at you know fourteen years later. <laughs> really, he is. Yeah, God love him. <laughs> so you, so you got into it. That was this. So you, how, how did that purchase go? So you went in. Was that two thousand and six when you when you took it over? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
the downside of it was you were not allowed to do any due diligence, none at all, nothing. It was by a scene and you had to take two people from the government agency under a, an arrangement called Tupi, which I don't know if anybody here has ever heard of, but it's a thing where the person's pension rights and everything come over to you and you have to uphold them. So that was a bit of a, it was a bit of an issue and I would never buy a business like that again. Yeah. Were there some unsavory things that you came to find out was going on in the business that you hadn't anticipated? Oh, the business, no, I knew the business would be a mess because it had been run by the place that I used to work in. So right. I, I knew that, I knew that there'd be a lot of uh, And you were cha- well challenges, for this because you had done this type of stuff before. I didn't really care. I thought we could fix it easily enough. I thought that we would be smart enough to be able to, and we'd know enough people to help us fix the tech and fix the customer service and whatever. But taking the two people was a bad, bad thing to do. So, Why was that so challenging? Well, they'd, they'd worked as really as civil servants for their careers and they were coming into what was now a four-person startup. So you and your business partner and the two of them? And the two of them joined us, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. What so, was that like to manage it? Did you just feel like you were carrying a dead weight? Well, one of them left after three days, so <laughs> that was kind of easy. The other one threatened us with a court action, which caused a lot of problems in the first year and cost us a lot of money, but we did eventually get that sorted out and uh, recruited our own team and everything eventually, after about three years, probably start to get a bit easier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm curious by the, the three-year mark because when you were you were talking, we were talking before about, you know, going into start up another business and you were kind of saying that it takes about three years to get a business up and running. Well, I think it takes about three years. Other yeah. people do it quicker, but I see a lot of people... Struggle, particularly if you're bootstrapping, which we did. We bootstrapped, Mm. which is hard, but it does really focus your mind on uh, getting to revenue at lightning speed. Yeah. And can you just tell me a little bit about what Learning Pool is? What was the the central business model behind it? Yeah, so the business, as we bought it, was an e-learning content house. um, They had content. The idea behind it was that local authorities have to train their people they were using a lot of face-to-face training at the time and it was very expensive and not very cost effective Mm. and they have statutory training that they must do for health and safety and lots of other courses like that so e-learning is a really ideal solution and local authorities weren't really using e-learning at the time because of the cds and those other things that we talked about earlier and 2006 was just the time when ubiquitous broadband sort of arrived in the uk and it became a lot easier for people to stick something in the cloud and off you go, that kind of way. So the technology, it was like a perfect storm. The technology was right. The market need was there. And so what we built was, uh, we built content initially, but the platforms that they used were delivered by a third party, which we had inherited from the government agency. So the sort of the pivot that we did, which happened really early doors, probably about three months in, because we figured out that we sold business to new clients. And then because we didn't provide them with a platform, we then handed that customer over to a third party that was nothing to do with us. And it was a bit like sending lambs to the slaughter. We had no control over the pricing or the customer service or anything else. So very early on, we decided that we needed our own learning management system. We decided to build one on open source technology, so we used the Moodle platform. Uh, 
as you will know, Moodle's very, very ugly out of the box, but you can, with a bit of work, make it, make it beautiful and make it efficient in the way it works. So you can strip out a lot of what's going on and make it easy. And that's what we did. So like if so if there was training that needed to be happening at one of the local government departments, they would come to you, would you guys you know, you would get a contract from them to develop the training for Sometimes. But what we did was we gave them an authoring tool and we let them build their own content. Oh wow. And they then had an option to share that back with the pool. That's the learning pool side of things. So they shared it back into the pool and anybody else that was a member of Learning Pool could take that course and just top and tail it, you know, use the authoring tool to change the couple of the images, change the colours, change the title of the owner, maybe change some of the multiple choice questions or whatever. So something that you've spent a couple of weeks developing, I can then take it, and in a couple of hours I've got something that's tailored for me. It was a beautiful idea. Very interesting, I like the sound of that. Um, And what led to your path of exiting there? Well, the six months that I thought it was going to take stretched out to, for me, seven and a half years I spent mm. working in Learning Pool. Um, and I, the business had grown quite large. By the time I exited, there were about 100 people working for the business. We'd been profitable from month eight. So um, it was always a good business. And we'd started moving out of the public sector into the private sector. And for me... It had just got kind of big. You know, 100-person businesses, I kind of like scrappy, early-stage businesses where there's a bit of chaos going on and you sort of have to put your Superman pants on and get on the phone to customers. I like that stuff. I don't like it when everything that you do has to have a purchase order and it must be entered into the, every conversation you ever have with anybody has to be entered into the CRM and all that sort of stuff becomes less interesting for me and... I just decided that I wanted to work with earlier stage startups. So I exited. I sold my half of the business because I still owned half of it because we didn't, because we bootstrapped. Um, I sold it to my business partner and members of the team. Because I don't know how much you know about dairy, but it's not the easiest place in the world to to build a business. Right. Um, it's got a troubled legacy. And it's all, you know, which has been further impacted by um, many, many call centres. So a lot of graduates that aren't mobile because they they must stay there in the northwest of Ireland. A lot of them end up working in call centres where they're on very low salaries and there isn't really any career progression for them. So it was really nice to build a company that employed a lot of young people that came out of those sorts of places and, and actually got really learned a lot about tech and started to really develop their own skills and get great experience and go up the career ladder and quadruple their salaries in a couple of years, you know? Yeah, it must have been amazing. Yeah, it's great. And what did you learn about yourself during that time? Because you had seen the type of, you know, individual that you were and your strengths in your career in the financial side of of business but you know from starting the consultancy company and then purchasing learning pool did you you obviously saw a broader perspective of what your strengths are what did you what did you start to learn about what it is that you like and you're good at and the things that you want to do less of well I think when you're a startup CEO you don't really have the luxury of being able to do things that you like because I do think that a lot of what you do 
ends up being stuff that nobody else will do or wants to do. Um, it's not a very, you know, it isn't a very glamorous place to be. Uh, and I think you have, you have a lot of hard decisions to make, particularly if you're bootstrapping. You know, I kind of think that if you've, if you've raised a nice seed round of a couple of mil or whatever, it's maybe a bit easier. You don't really have the same tensions as you do in a team where performance is really, really important because it's your money mm. and you've only got a certain amount of it. So that whole thing about, you know, being careful who you recruit and if people don't work out, then letting them go really quickly is something that you have to do. And it's something that I really don't really like about myself. I didn't don't really like, you know, nobody likes going into work and having to let people go, but... You have to do that because if you don't, the team doesn't respect you and everything starts to fall apart. It's a weird place to be, you know, as a CEO of a growing company. Everybody watches you, you know, so you have to, you have to build a company that's based around your own values and you have to really believe in that, I think. I always say to people, be very clear where your values are and where your boundaries sit before you start something that's going to scale because there will be many, many days when people ask you to cross those to cross those boundaries. And if you've already had that conversation in your own head first, you're a lot clearer. What were some of those on your on your agenda? Like things that were non-negotiables? I can remember going to a I can remember going to a meeting about a government contract in Northern Ireland where the person that I went to see explained to me, showed me an empty chair at the table and explained to me that there was a, another person in that chair that needed to be paid if I was to win that work. <laughs> so that, that way of doing business is not, not for me. So big contract or not, I just walked away from it. Yeah, because I suppose once you allow yourself to open up to th- th- that type of work, then that's a, that's a slippery slope. I think it's a slippery slope. That's going to happen again. Cross, once you cross any of your red lines, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. There was a great article. It was a great piece within the Harvard Business Review. The gentleman's name was, last name was Chamberlain. And uh, there's a story in there where he speaks about how he, he, was, he was a devout Christian. And at some point in his life, I think he was, I think he was living in the UK, maybe. He's American. He, he had make, made a commitment to himself that he would, not, he would not partake in any sporting events on Sundays. Um, Sunday was a day of, of like going to church and, and stuff like that. And uh, he was playing for this basketball team in a college that he was teaching at or working at. He was asked by his team, they got to a high level in the competition, like a semi-final or quarter-final to play. It was on a Sunday now. And he refused to. And they kept Adam and Adam and Adam saying, you know, you got to play. you got to play. You're one of our best players. If we don't, we lose. If we lose, this is on you. And he said just the turmoil in his mind to decide whether he would play or not. But he decided, no, he was going to stick to his principles, even if they were going to give out to him, even if, you know, they were going to be at this point and they would eventually lose. It was something that he wanted to stick to. And that was in his early 20s. But he said that simple decision just at that time to say, no, I won't play on a Sunday, meant for the rest of his life when things came along on a Sunday, he had that as a balancing act to say, no, I said no that time. So I will say no to all these other things that come along. And he said sticking 100% is far easier than trying to stick to your your rules and your virtues 98% of the time. I agree. And I'm sure that you experienced that once you said no to that big contract that was sitting there, then it was easier to say no to other things that kind of met the barrier so I think it's easier if you have thought about this in advance mm. definitely and decided where your where your boundaries lie and I also think that these days 
um, business millennials and Gen Z and everything are far more interested in businesses that are built around purpose and social enterprise and values than my generation ever was. And so it becomes important in the way that you build your team as well, because if you want to attract great talent, then your business has to sort of live by the same values as well as those people believe in. Otherwise, they're not going to work for you. Yeah, and because then you espouse like all the, all the virtues that you have, and the values that you have. So after Learning Pool was sold, did you kind of have a clean slate? Was, was you know, your life yeah. in your own hands as to what you wanted to create and do? Yeah, so I, I thought that I was going to go off and sit in the California desert for, you know, three months at least anyway. I was gonna Did that go seem out, attractive? I was going to go out in the desert. Yeah, absolutely. When you've been working uh, 18 hours a day for the seven and a half years, just taking a couple of days off here and there. Yeah, it's hard, it's hard, hard work being in a startup. So yeah, the thought of sitting in the desert and just watching the colours changing on the mountains every evening and not really having a nice empty head was very attractive. Uh, but instead what happened to me was I'd offered to... Uh, there was a woman that I knew in London who came from County Tyrone and she ran a charity, a charity that was around helping young people get into work by having them start volunteering and then they did paid volunteer, pay, paid work on the back of their volunteering experience. And they had won a couple of competitions. They'd won a big slog of money from Google and they built a platform that was like a short-term job matching platform. And she had asked me, just as I was thinking about coming out of Learning Pool, whether or not I would find somebody, she wanted to bring somebody in to run that project. And she hadn't been able to find anybody. She'd looked in the charity world and she couldn't, she couldn't find anyone. And uh, I tried a few people for her, but I didn't have any success. And I was in her office in Westminster on Christmas Eve. And I found myself, I was thinking about, I was off to California the next day, actually, and I found myself saying to her, oh, it's such a shame you haven't been able to find anybody, Terry. Uh, I'll tell you what. I'll be in here on the 21st of January when I get back from the States and I'll do it for the first few months. So I went straight into what was effectively a startup that had spun out of a London charity. I had a six month contract working in a charity part time, two and a half days a week. But I'd finished all the things that Terry asked me to do in three months. So I went back to her and said, there you go. I don't need the rest of this contract. You can save that bit of money. This is done, this is done, this is done. I've, you know, I've recruited a team. I've got someone to take over from me. I found some customers. I've raised another £300,000. There you go, job done. And she said to me, you know, I've worked in the charity world for 30 years. Nobody has ever finished a contract early. <laughs> she wasn't going to let you go, was she? she oh, no, she did. She, she did. did, yeah, she did. Oh, no, I was, I was out of there because I still had this... This idea that I was going to go and like sit in a darkened room for a while and just <laughs> let the thoughts flow through my head. So I decided that I would go in and do a bit of angel, early stage angel investing. And so that's what I've been doing for the last five or six years. And that's great fun. Well, what, what endears you to the angel investing? What's your kind of focus of the companies that you are investing into? Do you have a lot of people approaching you to, to be an investor in their companies? Oh my goodness, loads and loads and loads. Everybody's always looking for money, so loads and loads of people. Yeah. But... I'm really, really fussy about 
what I want to do and the sorts of people I want to work with. So it's really easy for me. Uh, it has to be female founding team. It has to be tech for good. It's got to be something that's going to make the world a better place. And it has to be something that I can actually, through my experience or through my network, add value to. You've really mapped out a, a really fascinating career. I, I suppose if we were to look at it there, I always find it so interesting when I get to speak to um, people like you and uh, successful entrepreneurs and innovators, because there's always a number of seasons in their in their in their careers and in their lives. And so do you think I've got any more left? <laughs> I think you've got many. <laughs> but uh, could we say that this is the third season where you had the first yeah, kind of an accountancy, yeah. the second one where you were in startups, and the third is yeah, is. is really about your you are channeling your experiences into yeah. others. Um, and you've, you're doing that in many different ways. So the one is angel investing. Uh, then you're also um, an entrepreneur in residence at Oxford University. Is that correct? I am, yes. And then you are uh, on I, the jury of um, Horizon. For yeah, I have, I have a day job where I work for the EU as one of the Horizon 2020 jury members. Uh, so, yeah. Could you tell me about the, the Horizon project? I think that's something that yeah, people are very interested um, in. Now that we've got to 2020, they're now calling it the EIC Accelerator. So that's the European Innovation Council. So uh, the EU created it as a way of uh, unearthing excellence in innovation across small and medium-sized enterprises uh, across the EU states. And so it is a way of injecting some grant money, now equity as well, into SMEs that have a disruptive product and have a team that is on the, on the verge of being able to scale. So the EU wants to put the money in at the time at the time that it's going to make a difference to helping them make that jump. And so does, it's a fascinating time to be involved in the companies or to you know to see the innovations. How many how many companies do you think you've seen that have pitched? Oh, hundreds. And what is what is the resounding I, I see hundreds of companies pitch elsewhere as well. Yeah, so has this bled into your life in general, that outside of doing it with Horizon? Because you, you were here, you were meant to be going to South by Southwest, and you were going to see a number of pitches there as well, I right? I was, yeah, because I worked on the startup pitch, uh, on the startup judging for South by Southwest this year. Um, so I do, in the course of a year, I will see hundreds of companies pitch in all manner of topics. I went, to the, I went down to the British consulate last night and seen eight companies pitch. <laughs> uh, all women that are here with the, uh, for the British consul. Something I'm curious about is a lot of the work that you have done throughout your life has been, you know, you you mentioned that you enjoy the chaos of it, but nonetheless, it's been very structured in the sense that you've uh, had a a very clear goal as to what you're you're going towards. You know, sales, you want to get sales, you want to restructure a company. Today, it is it is far more loose where there is many different threads of which you're tying together through kind of essential... Do you? Do you prefer that switch out? I wrote a blog about what good things happen if you can say yes Really? Yeah. That's interesting because that's kind of... Because as, as a startup CEO, you say no to everything. Yeah, and it's kind of like... You there's, have to. There's a conventional wisdom today about essentialism. I suppose you see that kind of being bred out of uh, some people in, in Silicon Valley where it's all about saying no to everything. And the more you say no, uh, the more you get to focus on what matters and, and you get to kind of cut things out. But I'm, I'm, can, you, can you tell me a bit more about that? Because it's, it's interesting to hear another perspective. Well... It was, a, it was a direct reaction from having to spend years saying no to things, mm. having to always say no to going to any events or going to any conferences or going to speak at anything because you didn't have time. And 
just generally saying no to most things. So um, after I'd come out of Learning Pool, I spent a whole year where I just thought, you know what, I'm going to try and say yes to a lot more things that cross my path. And it just made for a whole more interesting life. And working at Oxford, that was one of the things that I said yes to, which came out, out of a completely sort of remote, um, random conversation with somebody that I'd met on Twitter. You know, we were talking about Twitter earlier. So one of my earliest, like I've been a Twitter user for 11 years, and one of the earliest connections that I made was with a professor at Oxford. He's from San Francisco. His name is Mark Ventresca. And Mark and I were friends on Twitter for a long time. And then one day, he sent me a message saying, somebody has dropped out of a VC sort of competition that we were doing this weekend. I'm sure you're really busy, but it would be great if you came and, if you came and joined us. And so I immediately thought, oh, I can't do that. I'm too busy. I've got other plans this weekend. But I stopped myself and I thought about it. And I changed my stuff around and I went to Oxford instead. And it was the first time that I'd ever been to Oxford and I met loads of people. And out of that, eventually, I became an entrepreneur in residence as part of their network there. Uh, and out of that, I was offered the work with the EU. There's a, there's a direct thread that goes through all of that. So it starts with a conversation with a person that you've never met, but you decide to say yes to it and then it develops. So I'm really interested in the way that stuff does kind of just emerge if you're sort of paying attention and you put yourself out there. Mm. Because all sorts of stuff gets offered to you. I've seen, some of it's crazy. You described yourself as a people collector. Oh, yeah. On Twitter. So has that always been your nature to yeah. be a networker and engaging yep. with yep. people? Yeah. So I'm totally agnostic about who I collect. Yeah. It does, you know, there's certain people that are really focused about this. They only collect people that are useful for them, that work in their industry, the way they can see that they can definitely use them to get up the, you know, up the greasy pole. I've never done that. I just collect people that I find interesting and that I like. And has it, and it just gives you a. It a works okay life. for me. It works okay for me. Yeah. It's a skill. It's a skill that some people are born with, but then it's a. It's a practice that can be maintained as well, you know, in, in kind of nurturing a network. What are some of the things that you do? Yeah, so I do this mad little thing every year where I do this thing called 100 People. I've seen that. So yeah. I've, I've, wrote, I've written it up as a blog for the last couple of years because a lot of other people have started doing this as well. Yeah. Uh, and the basic premise is I have a think about people that I maybe haven't seen for a couple of years and I make a, a between Christmas and New Year. I make a list. I make a list of 100 people. Probably 90 of them are people that I already know but haven't seen for at least two years. And then I throw in a few extra people that are people that I've never met but would like to meet. And I publish, well, this year, for the first time, I published my list at the beginning of the year and I told all those people that they were on my list. Previously, I'd just sort of done it under the radar. I had the list, but it was in my book, and I didn't really tell anybody about it. And so there's a, you know, there's a few other people that do this. So at the end of every month, we sort of check in to see how many people off our list we've bagged. And is this is this a list to say? The, so these are at the end of 2019. It's a list of people to say I, people I want to meet in 2020. Is, is yeah. that what you're doing it for? Yeah. And do you write like a little bio about each person underneath the the name in the list, or it's just that they're there and you've publicly said I, I need to catch up with you? Yeah, 
that's it. They're yeah, pe- they're just people that I've said. Uh, you're you're you've you've blogged for a long time. And, and what kind of yeah. things have come out of blogging, or what is it that you do it for? Is it just that you these are concepts and ideas that you want to express and things? Because you, you interview people on there as well, right? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I uh, I think it's a bit like Twitter. It generates a lot of different sorts of interactions with people, and it unearths a lot of conversations with people that you don't already know, mm. and that's always. Uh, who knows where those things lead to? So I think when you're a startup, a startup CEO as well, blogging's just maybe a bit of a way of just like having a little bit of a rant to yourself because so many bad things happen. Yeah. And you do try to rationalize it by maybe writing it into a list of the top five X, Y, and Zs, you know? And it, once you've written it down, you can kind of stop thinking about it. Um, I don't blog as much these days because Twitter's just easier, isn't it? Yeah, you, you just can just blast it out. Fire off of 140 characters or whatever it is, and away you go, and people either send you a note back or they don't, and it's instant. Yeah. And as you, as you reflect on your life and as you reflect on your career to see you know the work that you're able to do for these people, is there anything that surprises you of yourself along the way or like things that you've really learnt from who you are that has come out of these experiences? I'm less of a people pleaser these days. You're less of a people pleaser? Yeah, I would say so. Um, Is that because it came kind of back to bite you sometimes? I just think that, I do think that being in a, being in a startup, particularly one where you don't raise any money, does change you as a person Mm. because it is tough. And so, yeah, I think I'm less of a people pleaser. I'm tougher than I was. Um, I still try to, I still try to be nice. But there's a sort of, a, you know, there is a there's a toughness behind it, which I didn't used to have. And I think that's just born out of necessity, probably. Yeah. Did that come from Learning Pool? From yeah, that time? I think so. Yes, I think so. Yeah. Um, Derry's a hard place to grow a business. Everything in Northern Ireland's extremely Belfast-centric. Um, Why so, did you choose to put, uh, place the company in Derry? Well... I lived in County Tyrone and my business partner lived in uh, Inishowen in Donegal and there's a university in Derry. Now, as we as we come to a close on this, uh, where can people where can people find you? What's your what's your handle on Twitter? At M. Mary McKenna. And on on your blog is My blog is it's called kickingassets.co.uk. I like that. Because I had the crazy idea that I was actually going to start an accountancy business back in the day. And so I bought the domain name Kicking Assets because that's what I used to call my business. <laughs> Which I thought was really smart about 15 years ago. It looks a bit silly now. Oh, I love it. Well, thank you very much, Mary. It's, Thanks for joining us. It's been yeah, a real pleasure having you. It's been a pleasure to join you today, Patrick. And uh, thank you very much for your time. I want to say a huge thank you to Mary for joining me on the show today. And thank you for listening to today's show. If you have any suggestions, please reach out to hello at digitalirish.com. If you want to learn more about the Digital Irish, you can visit digitalirish.com or message us on social with hashtag digitalirish. Since the coronavirus, we've been hosting a lot of online events. So wherever you are in the world, you're able to join that. We've been doing stuff over Zoom calls with fireside chats and also community gatherings where you all get to interact and connect with each other. And we've been hosting different previous guests of the podcast in some of those sessions. So to learn more about that, just stay in touch with us on social media 
or as I mentioned, you can check out the website digitalirish.com. With regards to this episode and the podcast as a whole, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe and review the show because it helps us tremendously. And you can also find the show on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and all other major podcasting platforms. I'd like to say thank you to Kieran Kay and Matt Stewart from the Full English Post for producing this episode. I'm Patrick McAndrew, and you've been listening to the Digital Irish Podcast.